I'm Taylor, and welcome to Square Mile of Murder. We're picking up where we left off last week with the story of Charles Sobrage, nicknamed the Serpent, for his ability to slither out of pretty much any situation, including multiple prisons in Europe, the Middle East, and India. We wrapped up last week in 1975 when Sobraj had tricked his younger brother Andre into taking his place in a Greek jail, <laughs> as all good siblings do. But the Greek prison service weren't happy about the brothers trying to trick them, so Andre was then extradited to neighbouring Turkey, where he was sentenced to 18 years hard labour for a string of robberies and scams that the pair had carried out between 1973 and 1975. So Braj once again hit the hippie trail, this time heading for Thailand, pulling small-time scams along the way to pay his way. But he had grand plans for this next phase of his life. Oh. Boy, did he. Um, so, Sabraj decided that he needed a new family. After all, he had used all of his real family until they wanted nothing to do with him or had left him or he'd left them in prison. So kind. He typically targeted native French or English-speaking tourists posing as a drug dealer or a gem salesman. And he would befriend them and gain their trust and then rob them. By the time he reached Thailand, he'd pretty much perfected this scheme. And that was when he met Marie-André Leclerc from Quebec, Canada. And got a little Québécois in there. Um, Leclerc was looking for adventure in East Asia. And she found that as the two began a passionate love affair. Um... But at the end of her holiday, Leclerc returned to Canada. But she did promise to return to Bangkok soon. So Leclerc was 30 when she met Sobraj in 1975. So she was only a year younger than him. She was not some naive 18-year-old, fresh off the plane, having never been away from home before. Which is how most of us think of the typical kind of cult follower family member like this. Or even, to perfect lines, a lot of travellers off on the hippie trail finding yeah. themselves in temples, you know. Yeah. Be honest, that is how we imagine a lot of them. Yeah. But this does speak to how good of a con man Sobraj was that he was able to start this criminal family with someone the same age as him and not have to try it out on someone much younger, more vulnerable or naive. Mm-hmm. And that's like I said, not naive as an insult, but 30-year-olds, as we almost are, mm. have a lot more life experience than 18-year-olds. It's just a fact of life. I mean, think back to when we were 18. Don't know about you, but I thought I knew it all. Yeah. I had this grand plan. Life was going to turn out this way. I was going to do this, that, and the other. Shit don't work like that. Yeah. So when Leclerc uh, returned to Canada, she and Sabraj began writing to each other. He reportedly begged her return to return to Thailand. But when she did return to Thailand, uh, Sabraj had found himself another pretty young thing. Uh, a Thai woman that we believe was called May, but we also couldn't find her full name. Um, he told uh, Marie Leclerc that May was his secretary. I'm not so sure about that. Um, That's secretary in inverted commas. Yeah. <laughs> with a raised eyebrow. Yeah. Secretary? Mm, don't know. Uh, and such was her infatuation for him that she put up with his philandering. And uh, Marie became his fiercest and most loyal follower. That's always what happens when I I I travel across the world to see someone who's been begging me to come see them and find them stupping someone else. I become their most loyal follower. That's totally like the right order of events there, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't do that for someone who lived down the road, never mind halfway across the world. Exactly. <laughs> it's like there's something wrong with this picture. So... 
somehow this is the conclusion that she came to. Uh, and the group began pulling their usual scams, uh, befriending tourists and usually drugging them, waiting until they passed out. Uh, and then they would rob them of their valuables and often their passports as well, uh, so that they could move across borders with with ease, since there were still multiple warrants out for Sabraj's uh, recapture at this point Fr- from a myriad of places. He was just a very yeah. popular guy. <laughs> Everyone just wanted him. Yeah. But two women wasn't even a harem, much less a family. So Sobraj needed to find a way to add a few more followers to his family. And of course, he had another scam up his sleeves. Rather than befriending people and then robbing them, as he had done to raise money whilst he was moving around throughout Asia, he decided to befriend them, rob them, and then help them out, presenting himself as a kind of knight in shining armour. Hmm... They first tried this on two Frenchmen who were in Thailand in 1975. All we know about them is that they were both former police officers in the French colonies. And their names were Yannick and Jacques. So Braj charmed the two young men, as he did with almost all of his victims. And after playing them with wine, women and song, all the great things in life... (laughs) The men went out on the town with Marie Leclerc. And so Braj snuck back to their lodgings and stole their passports, money, and any other valuables he could find. The next day, when the two men were, you know, hungover and panicking, uh, so Braj popped up like the helpful soul that he was and offered the two men a place to stay, to stay until they got themselves sorted with replacement passports and everything else. And he told the men that anything they owed him for, like, board and lodge could be worked out later. That is just so considerate. I know. What a kind soul. Sabraj added another Frenchman to his family, a man by the name of Dominique Renelot, or some such pronunciation. Someone wasn't pleased with how I said that. Oh, maybe he was agreeing. (laughs) Oh, he was agreeing. You think I did it right, buddy? Um, uh, Leclerc had brought Dominique to their home. Uh, he was kind of out of it and quite clearly very ill. When Dominique came to, Sabraj told him that he was suffering from dysentery, which can be a very severe form of gastroenteritis and can be deadly. But again, uh, the kind soul that he was... You know, so so familiar with helping weary travelers, Sabraj offered Dominique a place to stay until he recovered. Uh, now, although dysentery can be very severe, it usually burns its way through your body pretty quickly. Uh, or it kills you thanks to the dehydration. Either way, it's not usually a long, drawn-out illness. But, you see... <laughs> Poor Dominique just wasn't getting better. Uh, And that's because Sobraj and Leclerc were poisoning Dominique to make him dependent on them. And when they made it clear to him that he was in their debt, Dominique agreed to join them to pay back what he owed them. And then suddenly, wouldn't you know it, he made a full recovery. Imagine that, right? I know, right? It's like, oh, well, isn't that... Just a coincidence. So convenient. So handy. Um, Now, the family was finally completed by a young Indian man named A.J. Chowdhury, who already had quite the criminal career of his own. Uh, Chowdhury quickly became Suraj's loyal second-in-command. And it was then, in 1975, that Suraj and his now new right-hand man, A.J. Chowdhury, began their killing spree. It is reported that most of their victims had spent time with the family before they were killed and that they had intended to go to the police about whatever crimes they had witnessed or been a victim of or even been a part of. And that was the reason that they were killed. Their first known victim was Teresa Knowlton. 
although she is called Jenny Bolivar, Bolivar in some sources. That's a very There's, different name. Yeah, it happens with a couple of them, actually. There's, I think, when I say a couple, I think there's three where they've got different names in some sources. So <laughs> we have just gone with whichever name pops up in the most, the most yeah. places. Quite honestly, because that's the only way we can go. Yeah. Teresa was a young woman from Seattle who was finding herself in temples and meditating her way around Southeast Asia when she crossed paths with Sobraj's family. So we believe this was either in Bangkok or Pattaya, which is a coastal city a couple of hours from the capital, Bangkok. Teresa was found floating face down in the Gulf of Thailand, just off the coast of Pattaya. Uh, She was found wearing a floral bikini, and initially her death was thought to be nothing more than a tragic accident, but her autopsy revealed that she had been held underwater until she drowned. Nobody is entirely sure of the reasons behind Teresa's murder, because Sobraj has never explained, but Dutch diplomat Herman Nippenberg That's a great name. I know, that's amazing. So uh, Herman Nippenberg believes Teresa was murdered after she refused to join Sobraj's entourage and become a smuggler. Their second victim was a young man by the name of Vitali Hakim. Uh, we don't know much about him before he met Sobraj and his family. Uh, he's described as a, quote, nomadic Sephardic Jew who, like Teresa, was traveling through Thailand looking for adventure and sort of trying to find himself. Vitali stayed with the Sobraj family for a few days, and then one day he accompanied Sabraj and Chowdhury on a trip to another resort town along the coast from Pattaya. And uh, that was the last time that he was seen alive. Sabraj told the other family members that uh, Vitali had decided to move on and stay with people he met in this other coastal town that they had visited, which, again, we're not sure which resort this was. Um, but family members uh, Yannick and Jacques were confused uh, because most of Vitali's things were still in the house, and he had turned over his passport and val- valuables to Sabraj for safekeeping. Bit suspicious. Yeah, I'd be more than just like confused. I'd be like, what the fuck? The fuck is going on here, guys? Mm. Uh, yeah. So, about a week later, Vitali's body was found in a burned out car near Pattaya. Thai authorities believe that Vitali had been uh, targeted by local bandits, robbed, and then murdered, and they didn't connect it at all to the recent bikini murder. Um, an autopsy later revealed that Vitali was still alive when he was doused in uh, petrol and set alight. At some point after Vitali's murder, uh, Sabraj and Chowdhury went to Hong Kong. Sabraj now had a plan to open a gem store of his own. Now, whether this meant he was planning to open a legit business or he was setting up a front for himself to keep running his usual scams, we don't know. It's hard to say. Um, But either way, Sabraj had found a, a location, a premises for the gem store in Bangkok, but he needed to put up $25,000 to get the shop off the ground, Uh, which actually makes it sound like it might have been a legitimate business venture. So, yeah, because, okay, this is like 40 40 odd years ago. 25, I mean, $25,000 is still a hell of a lot of money now. But for something like to open up a store, like a, yeah. Yeah, and think about how much more it would have seemed back then. Yeah. To, like I say, just to open up a, a store, you wouldn't need that much, but you'd need that much if you were buying actual gems. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But of course, Sobraj was not the hardworking type. So he wasn't planning on getting a good job or any job, really. Saving up, all that. Nah. He wanted to make the most money with the least effort. I mean, 
We all wish we could do that, but it's fact of life that we can't. Yeah. So Sabaraj decided he would go to Hong Kong, hit up some of his old contacts from his and Chantal's brief stay there, trying to charm their way into Hong Kong's high society, which we talked about in the first part last week. Mm -hmm. And if that didn't didn't work, he would just, you know, hit up the casinos in Macau and win the money instead. But, as you will remember from last week, Sobraj had fled Hong Kong four years earlier after running up $50,000 of debt at the casinos in Macau. And as soon as he stepped back into one of those casinos four years later, he was immediately clocked by one of the workers and had to flee again. But before he flew back to Thailand, Sobraj had time to make a couple of new friends. He's just so personable, this guy. I know. Friendly guy that he was, Sobraj invited Dutch student Hank Bintanya, age 29, and his 25-year-old fiance Cornelia Hemker, uh, to stay with him in Thailand after meeting them in Hong Kong. As with Dominique earlier in the year, Sobraj poisoned the couple, and then he and Leclerc uh, nursed them back to health uh, to ensure their dependence on the family. But as the couple recovered, Sobraj was visited by a new problem. Uh, now, we said last week that Sobraj's motivation for murder wasn't really to do with any kind of like psychological condition or childhood trauma or, you know, a knock on the head. His motivation was very much financial gain and murder was his way of just cleaning up after he sort of got what he wanted. But one thing Sabraj didn't think through was the very real likelihood that someone would come looking for one or more of his victims and investigate their deaths and eventually connect the dots that led to him. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in late 1975 when Vitali's girlfriend, uh, Charmaine Karu, traveled to Thailand to try and solve her boyfriend's murder. She visited the hotel that he'd stayed in uh, before going to the family, quote-unquote family home, who told him he'd actually checked out a few weeks before he'd been killed. And she eventually retraced his steps and found her way to Sabraj's home. So Sabraj had to find a way to fix his problems, and pretty quickly too. First, he had to get rid of his new friends from Hong Kong, Hank and Cornelia, before they found out what had happened to Vitali. Then he had to deal with Charmaine. Within hours, possibly even minutes, depending on the reports, of Charmaine arriving at this family compound, villa, dwelling, whatever. We're not really sure what it was because (laughs) it's just got so many different names. Yeah. So within sort of minutes of her arriving, Hank and Cornelia were hustled out of it, out of the villa, by Sobraj and Chowdhury. And the foursome went out. But when Sobraj and Chowdhury returned a few hours later smelling of petrol, nobody questioned it. Hmm. Uh, Hank and Cornelia's bodies were found a few days later. So this is mid-December 1975. So they were found on December 16th. They'd been strangled and their bodies had been burned. The Thai newspapers went into overdrive with the story of this unidentified Western couple who had been killed by local bandits. But a couple of days later, that story was knocked off the front pages when Charmaine's body was found floating in the water in the Gulf of Thailand, just off the beach near Pattaya. Charmaine was wearing a floral bikini, just like Teresa had been. And the two murders were immediately linked to this unknown bikini killer. But Hank, Cornelia and Vitali's murders still weren't. They were still sort of local bandits. On December 18th, so the same day that Hank and Cornelia's bodies were identified, and the same day that Charmaine was found floating in the ocean, Sobraj and Leclerc fled to Kathmandu in Nepal using Hank and Cornelia's passports. 
AJ Chowdhury may or may not have been with them, using someone else's passport or even his own. Reports vary. <laughs> so while Sabraj, possibly Chowdhury, and Leclerc were in Nepal, uh, Yannick, Jacques, and Dominique uh, put the pieces together, and they got the hell out of there. Uh, the trio, having been left alone in the villa for the first time, decided to go poking around, and they found dozens of passports, papers, and loads of valuables like cash and jewelry, all belonging to those who had either been robbed, scammed, or murdered by Sabraj and, and company. The three men were absolutely horrified when they finally put the pieces together, along with the passports and personal possessions was the fact that Siraj, Leclerc, and Chowdhury had all fled when the bodies of Hank, Cornelia, and Charmaine had been found. So the three men grabbed their things, finally got their own passports back, uh, as well as their wallets and other valuables, and they ran. Uh, they headed for Bangkok, but before they went to the airport, they went to the police and told them what had been going on at the villa. Uh, then they all flew back to Paris, and as far as we can tell, they never had anything to do with Sobraj and what was left of his family ever again. And now we also have no idea where May, Sobraj's quote-unquote secretary, was at this time, if she was still around, what she was up to. She doesn't seem to be mentioned in any sources, and she's not listed as one of his victims, so we assume she was alive somewhere, but not sure if she was on the scene. While the three men were finally escaping the villa and returning to France, Sabraj, Leclerc, and possibly Chowdhury were in Nepal, befriending more tourists. A few days before Christmas, they met and quickly befriended 26-year-old Canadian man Laurent Carrier and 29-year-old Connie Bronzik from the US. Laurent had stopped off in Kathmandu on his way to the Himalayan mountains to climb Mount Everest. He was just kind of hanging out there waiting for the weather to improve. Whereas Connie was... Reportedly a California girl who, like many of their other victims, was travelling around East Asia trying to find herself, the meaning of life, all this kind of thing. The group spent a lot of time hanging around Freak Street in Kathmandu. So Freak Street, now known as Old Freak Street, <laughs> is a street to the south of the Kathmandu Durbar Square which is outside the old royal palace. So it's one of the most famous places for travellers to go in Nepal. It's kind of that iconic image of Kathmandu with the stupas and the temples. It's that area. Mm -hmm. Freak Street was, according to Wikipedia, because neither of us have any idea what Nepal is like. No. So Freak Street was supposedly nirvana for hippies back in the day because cannabis was legal, openly sold in licensed shops, and it was also a place to find souvenirs, tourist tats, arts, crafts, cultural exhibitions, pretty much if you were looking for it, you could find it on Freak Street. <laughs> However, there was a directive from the US government to crack down on hippies in Kathmandu in the 1970s, and many were deported to India. So the hippie shops of Freak Street were replaced with shops catering to other travellers and those trekking the Himalayas, but it is still a popular area for travellers, tourists, and locals alike. Um... So we don't know the exact circumstances, but a few days after meeting Laurent and Connie, uh, Sabraj, Leclerc, and possibly Chowdhury murdered the two young people. Connie's charred body was found in a field on the outskirts of Kathmandu. She had been stabbed to death. Uh, and authorities found that she had spent a fair bit of time in the company of Laurent Carrier. And according to Nepalese passport records, Laurent Carrier had just flown from Kathmandu to India. So initially, 
Authorities believe that Laurent and Connie had recently entered into a relationship, and following an argument, Laurent had murdered Connie. But that theory didn't last long, because a couple of days after Connie's body was found, Laurent's body was found nearby, and he had also been stabbed to death, and his body had then been set on fire. They'd also stolen some gems which Connie had bought on Freak Street, with Sabraj using his tried and tested persona as a gem salesman to win her trust, uh, and he told her that uh, she'd been ripped off and he would help her get her money's worth. While the Nepalese authorities continued investigating Connie and Laurent's death, Sabraj returned to the family's villa in Thailand and found that in his brief absence, his three French family members had deserted him and fled the country. Fearing that the authorities might be onto them, the trio returned Kathmandu again on passports belonging to their victims. They were questioned by Nepalese authorities, but managed to bluff their way out of it, and then they fled to uh, Calcutta, or Kolkata. So whilst in Calcutta, or Kolkata, depending how you pronounce it, uh, Sabraj murdered Israeli student Avani Jacob, Simply so he had a clean passport with which to once again flee. Jesus. This time to Singapore. Naturally, he also stole the small amount of cash that Avani had, which was around $300. I don't know why this really make This just... Like, all of it is horrendous, but he killed a guy literally for a passport. Yeah. And $300, like... I know. It's just... That it just sucks. Yeah. So either in Calcutta or Singapore, they stole the gems that had been stolen from Connie in Kathmandu. They spent the next few months in Singapore running their usual scams. They spent some time in India as well. But in March 1976, they finally returned to Thailand. Things weren't exactly as they had left them, though, because the authorities had been building a case against Sobraj and what was left of his family. So, Dutch diplomat, diplomat Herman Nippenberg. Yeah. We do love his name. Yeah. So he'd been investigating the murders of Henk and Cornelia with the help of Sobraj's neighbours. And he was eventually allowed to search the villa where he found passports and other paperwork along with all sorts of poisons. But Sobraj had always maintained that Southeast India was, quote, the land of greased palms. And he allegedly paid corrupt law enforcement officers $18,000 to turn a blind eye while he, Leclerc, and Chowdhury escaped once more. This guy is slippery, isn't he? Yeah. They headed back to Singapore, or possibly Malaysia. Again, according to some reports, there's a lot of that in this story. <laughs> Um, so while they were in Singapore, Sabraj tasked Chowdhury with, quote, procuring gems from local stores, uh, but Chowdhury was spotted delivering these gems to Sabraj. He stole approximately $40,000 worth of jewels that the group would take to Geneva to sell to wealthy Europeans. Some say these gems were stolen from gem stores in Singapore. Um, others say that they were taken from mining areas in Malaysia. Either way, a lot of valuable gems. Um, once Suraj realized that Chowdhury had been identified as the jewel thief and there was uh, a risk that the trail would lead back to him, Suraj went out with Chowdhury one day and then came back alone. Uh, Funny how that happens. Yeah, right? Yeah, just got lost or something. Or who knows? And I almost never lose my friends when I take them out for I, the day. I know. Almost never. <laughs> um. So when Siraj met Leclerc at the airport, he told her that Chowdhury had left of his own accord and that he had no idea where he was and that she was never, ever to ask him that question again. Which is not at all suspicious, buddy. Yeah. I know that we have the benefit of hindsight, but this is some really dodgy shit. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, but if it's like this guy you've been hanging out with for two years and he just doesn't show up one day. And also that you know that you're 
your lover boy here is a stone cold killer. Because you've been complicit yeah. slash active in numerous murders. All of the crimes. Just seems a little silly. Um, so Chowdhury has never been seen since. Um, and because of that, it's widely accepted that Subraj murdered him and disposed of his body somewhere in either, again, Singapore or Malaysia. Um, but this has never been definitively proven because no body has ever been found. Uh, so can't know for sure. Uh, one contributor to the Murderpedia page on Charles Subraj claims that Chowdhury had outlived his usefulness and is buried somewhere in the Malaysian jungle. I mean, I think that's the most likely yeah. scenario. Yeah. Subraj and Leclerc headed for Geneva, but this venture was short-lived, and a few months later they left Europe. The couple landed back in India, knowing they were wanted in Thailand, but now they didn't really have enough money to pay off law enforcement, and the Dutch authorities were closing in. So they headed to Delhi to begin rebuilding their family. But, as usual, things did not go as planned. They began working their usual scams again, but whilst trying to rob a Frenchman named Jean-Luc Solomon, they accidentally killed him. Oops. Yeah. So Braj had just intended to drug him so they could rob him, but gave the man an accidental overdose, and Jean-Luc became Sobraj's ninth confirmed murder victim. Around this time, Sobraj had added a couple of women to the family, Barbara Smith and Mary Ellen Ether. They are both described as, quote, lost Western women, so we're not entirely sure where they were from, but, you know, likely Western Europe or the USA. Um, we don't know if that means they were, like, physically lost in Delhi and Sobraj helped them out, you know, which is what he did with uh, Yannick and Jack, the two Frenchmen. Sobraj helped them out. Or lost in the hippie gap year, travelling, find yourself in a temple for a religion you don't even belong to way. Who's to say? Yeah. What's also not clear is exactly when Barbara Smith and Mary Ellen either joined the family. Some say it was before Jean-Luc Solomon's death, others say it was after, so we don't know if they had any involvement in his death or not. A lot, lot, of, lot of question marks in this case. <laughs> or like uh, loose threads left at the ends of some of these. Yeah. It's very untidy. Yes. <laughs> What we do know is that the two women were involved with Sabraj's next big scheme. In July 1976, Sabraj posed as a tour guide and conned a group of French postgrad students into taking one of his tours. That evening, he offered them medication that he told the group uh, were anti-dysentery pills. Uh, now, almost all the group took the pills, uh, and... Needless to say, but we will say it, um, they weren't anti-dysentery pills, they were poison. So, unfortunately for Sabraj and his cohort, uh, but fortunately for travelers all over Southeast Asia, these pills kicked in just a little bit too quickly, and the students who hadn't taken them realized that their friends uh, were beginning to pass out around them and the friends who were passing out were the friends who had taken the pills already uh Sabraj tried to make a quick exit but three of the group who hadn't taken the pills tackled him to the ground and held him down until the police arrived and hopefully and we assume until ambulances arrived for those who had been poisoned it didn't take them long to round up marie leclerc barbara smith and mary ellen ether and their job was made easier when Smith and Ether cracked almost immediately and confessed everything to the police in Delhi. Leclerc, however, stood by Sabraj to the day she died, but we'll get to that in a bit. The police very quickly connected Sabraj to the death of Jean-Luc Solomon as well. Sabraj stuck to his story that he was a French businessman. This was for the first two weeks in police custody. <laughs> But eventually he began to crack, 
just slightly, and he gave up on the cover story of being a French merchant and admitted that he was Charles Sobrash. He was well aware that he was wanted by the Greeks, the Turkish, and the Afghanis at this point for his prison breaks. The Thai police were after him for the murders he and his family had committed. And now, with all of this attention on him, the Nepalese authorities were taking a second look at him for the murders in Kathmandu. He wasn't stupid, though. (laughs) He knew how prisons worked in India. He managed to secrete 70 carats worth of gems upon, or more likely up in, his body, which he could then use to bribe his way to a more comfortable stay in Tahir Prison. All four of the family members were taken to Tahir Prison just outside of New Delhi, which at the time was India's most infamous prison. While Sabraj was bribing his way to a better standard of living in prison, his accomplices weren't quite so lucky. Uh, Conditions for those accused of murder were harsh, to put it nicely. Cells came complete with rats and insects. Uh, Water came out of a standpipe directly into the cell once a day, and if you weren't there with a container to catch it, you had to wait until the next day. (laughs) Lovely. Uh, and the food rations weren't much better. For accused murderers, it was literally just dried bread. Uh, and we're not even gonna get into the toilet situation. All lack of. Yeah. Not this close to It was a Christmas. hole in the floor is the upshot of that. Well, you got into it. We weren't gonna get into it. Into the hole in the floor. Nobody should get into that hole in the floor. No. Well, uh... <laughs> Um, so the judicial system in India was pretty clogged up at the time. Uh, at one point, Marie Leclerc shared a cell with a young Malaysian girl who had literally been forgotten by the system after being arrested. Nobody knew who she was or what she was in for, and she slowly went insane. Uh, things weren't exactly great in India in general, and martial law had been declared, so more and more political prisoners were entering the system as well as the usual criminals. Uh, Because of this, it took two years for the case to go to court, and in this two-year period, both Barbara Smith and Mary Ellen Ether attempted suicide. When it finally did go to court, of course, the case was an absolute fiasco. So Braj was not about to go quietly into the night and he turned his trial into an absolute farce. He repeatedly fired his lawyers in court, like in the middle of court, and in the end, he represented himself. At one point, he brought his recently paroled brother, Andre, to help him, some say escape, others say help him prepare for his trial. Who knows? (laughs) So the upshot of that is that Andre actually only ended up serving four years in Turkey, not 18, which I think is a huge relief to everyone. Yeah. If my, old, I mean, I am the oldest sibling, so I can't really, I don't really know how younger siblings feel, but if my elder sibling was like, okay, come run all these crazy scams in Turkey and Greece with me, I'd be like, well, I'm going to come hang out in Greece. I love Greece. It's a great country. Um, As a tourist. I'd be like, yeah, okay, we'll hang out in Greece, but I'm not running all these scams. But if then, I was like, okay, let's do this crazy prison swap so that I can get on the run and you're here pretending to be me, but then they'll let you go, you know, eventually when they work it out. Then I got sentenced to 18 years hard labour in Turkey, which we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. It's not a good situation. Um, Then I got paroled after four years. I would not be going to then help that elder sibling. No, I wouldn't I'm like, ever. No way. You'd never speak to them again. <laughs> yeah. But clearly, Andre did not have the same feelings as us. Did not have the same sense of self preservation, I, I think is fair to say. <laughs> self respect or common anything. sense. Yeah. So he's hanging out in Delhi helping his brother. Uh, at one point, Sabraj went on hunger strike in protest of the conditions at Tahir Prison. 
Not that he was even experiencing the worst of them because yeah. he'd bribed his way to a nice cell with a good view, possibly. <laughs> the judge was not impressed with all of Sobrage's antics and he was sentenced to 12 years in prison for the death of Jean-Luc Solomon. Although he was charged with administering drugs with the intent to rob, causing hurt to commit robbery. Yeah, so he was... Uh, essentially charged with manslaughter rather than murder. After which, he would be extradited to Thailand to stand trial for the murders he committed there. He was lucky, though, because 12 years is a hell of a climb down from the death penalty, which is what they were originally seeking in India. Yeah, I'd say. Marie Leclerc was convicted of supplying the poison which was given to the French exchange students, but she was found not guilty of murder. She was paroled in 1983, so five years after the trial, but seven years after she was arrested. So seven years into her prison must have been hell. Yeah. But she was actually paroled on compassionate grounds because she developed cancer and she would die a year later. And she's still only 39 years old. She is. We're not sure what happened to Barbara Smith or Mary Ellen Ether. We think they must have turned state's witness, but we don't know because we couldn't find what happened to them in any of the sources we used. But this was not the end. Oh no, my friends. It's never the end with this guy. We're going to be here for months. <laughs> No, no, not much longer. <laughs> um, Sabraj bided his time and actually served another 10 years in Tahir prison, although he definitely had a much better time than any of his family uh, had because thanks to all of his smuggled-in gems, he made friends with the guards. Uh, he had a television in his cell, which was very rare. He had gourmet food and was often visited by journalists and reporters. He spoke openly about the murders, but still never actually admitted to them. Uh, he instead referred to them as a protest against what he described as Western imperialism in East Asia. But eventually, in 1986, he pulled his old trick and decided that he had other places to go. So he threw a party in the prison and drugged everyone with sleeping pills. Which is, that alone is a lot to unpack. <laughs> he was allowed to throw a party. a party in the most notorious prison in the country. He, he had acquired sleeping pills to, you know, spike the punch. Yeah. And enough sleeping pills to... Yeah. to literally knock out everyone and he was in such good graces or had schemed his way you know into becoming friends with all of the staff that he was able to just walk out yeah he just walked right out the door i know this okay this is the the mid 80s by this point but there are there no checks and balances in these prisons like maybe a second person keeping an eye on the door yeah, and like... He's not attending a prisoner's, you know, 10-year in prison anniversary. Hey guys, I've been here 10 years. Let's celebrate by helping me escape. <laughs> wow, I love it. Um, so yeah, everyone passed out and he walked right out the door. Uh, however, he didn't really make any attempt to flee or hide or anything like that. And he was recaptured a few weeks later at a restaurant in Goa. Yeah, so Goa is quite a distance from Delhi, but he was. The point is more that he wasn't hiding. He because than, yeah, because we know from his past that he has the ability to just up and vanish more or less it, from these countries. Bit, yeah, it's kind of like Ted Bundy, just like eh, I'm a head out. I'm just, I'm done here. Yeah. But this time, he didn't, you know, he didn't steal someone's passport and then cross the border. He, no, you know, he just he kind of hung around. Traveled a few hundred miles to another part of the country. Yeah. Um, so 
for his <laughs> escape, he had an extra 10 years added to his original 12-year sentence. Uh, now, you might be confused about why he would want to escape, but then just let himself get caught a few weeks later. Well, we can clear that up for you. The arrest warrant that had been issued in Thailand for the murders expired after 20 years. And had Saraj been released after his initial 12-year sentence in India, he would have been immediately extradited to Thailand. And in Thailand, they were gunning for the death penalty. And because he'd, you know, spent all his ill-gotten gems in Tahir prison, he had nothing left to bribe a whole new set of guards in Thailand. Just wouldn't be feasible. So... By escaping and having 10 years added to his sentence, he knew that he would end up serving an extra 10 years. And by the time he was released after 22 years, the statute of limitations would have expired and he would be free to go. And that is exactly what happened. Sabraj was released on February 17th, 1997, at the age of 52. That is mind-boggling that he's still so young so as well. So young, what the fuck? So not only had the warrant in Thailand expired, warrant had expired and evidence and witnesses had all been lost along the way. So nowhere was actually crying out for extradition. Even Afghanistan, Turkey, Greece, nowhere was really bothered anymore. <laughs> so Sobraj walked free and was allowed to leave India and return to France. And he had a pretty luxurious life post-prison. He even hired a publicist and charged vast amounts of money for interviews. He reportedly sold the film rights to the story of his life for more than $15 million upon his release from prison. And there has been a couple of films made about him. I think the Bollywood one, the name of which escapes me, is the most famous example. But mm -hmm. yeah, and I think there's three books written about him as well. So life was pretty sweet for Sabraj for a while. But he got cocky and eventually returned to the scene of his crimes. Well, two of them at least. <laughs> In 2003, he was spotted by a journalist on the streets of Kathmandu. And this journalist immediately reported him to Nepalese authorities. Unlike in Thailand, an, ar an arrest warrant was never issued for Sobraj when he was imprisoned in Tahir. So there was no statute of limitations or arrest warrant or anything that could have expired. So, in 2004, he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Connie Bronzik. And in 2014, he was convicted for Laurent Carrier's murder as well. Firstly, nobody knows why he went back to Nepal. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. Yeah, we can say he got cocky and he went back there thinking... All was going to be fine, but nobody actually knows why he went back. Yeah. Um, that remains one of the many mysteries surrounding this case. Yeah, really. He has filed a number of appeals, but all of them have been rejected. In 2018, he was reported to be seriously ill and underwent a number of open heart surgeries, but survived. So he's now 76 years old and remains in prison in Nepal. And that is the case of the serpent, the bikini killer, the hippie trail killer, the scumbag that is Charles Sobrash. Thoughts? <sighs> this guy makes me tired. Like, I'm exhausted. This is such a complicated, <laughs> convoluted mess of crime and murder and prison and warrants and oh my god. <laughs> And yeah, I'm honestly it, surprised I've never heard of this guy before uh, we started looking at him. Yeah. So we should probably explain what happened. So we do normally have a plan for what cases we're going to do. Yeah. And we did have sort of two cases that were linked to British cases that had been requested um, by one of our Instagram followers. And they're really heavy, really complex. And we got to looking at them and we were like, it's. It's a lot, and we did not have the sort of mental bandwidth to do it at the moment. Yeah. So we've kind of been pushed 
to at least February for next year. So I have a book that is literally just called Serial Killers. (laughs) And I literally flipped through it until Taylor said stop and we picked whoever was on the that page um and it was charles sabraj and i had heard one podcast about him uh but i listen to podcasts when i got bed so i often fall asleep (laughs) so i didn't realize how complex this case was never got to the end there (laughs) no (laughs) i got to him leaving his brother in greece oh things just got worse from there yeah um so when we started we had no idea what this case was like and it's just so frustrating because there's so many different versions of it and like just the other day when i was finishing off the second part of the script i find found another version of how sobraj had escaped in greece you know some say he was released you know posing as his brother which is what we said last Mm -hmm. week and then i found another source that said he faked illness and escaped on the like from the prison transport on the way to a hospital in Athens, which he had also done before. Yeah. Um, in India, when Sh- uh, Chantal had drugged the guard at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So it's just, there's just so many different versions. There's also debate around whether it was actually Thailand or India where Sobraj and Leclerc met. Um, there's a lot. Like names and places, there seems to be a lot of variance. Yeah. Like you say, sometimes it's like Malaysia and Singapore. Okay, they're next to them. You could easily cross the border from one into another. Yeah, it's just really frustrating. I, I wonder if part of the reason there are so many versions of these stories, uh, is is because. Sovraj has been out there for years, like giving interviews and selling life rights and telling whatever version of the story he wants to tell. Yeah, I'd never thought of that, but that makes sense. I mean, he clearly a narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. If he's selling like life rights and all these interviews and everything and making literally millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. Why wouldn't he just embellish a bit here and yeah, there just and change up? To, like I don't know. It, it's just something as as we were talking about it, like and thinking about like why would there be so many different versions of these like details? But yeah. it makes it confusing to say the least. Yeah. And then there's like the sort of unknown or unnamed victims that we don't know anything about. You know. So supposedly the tourists he just killed, drugged and killed in in Thailand. He, we don't know their names. We don't know if they really existed. Yeah. Are they just another embellishment? Yeah. The taxi driver in Rawalpindi, mm-hmm. who we talked about last week. We don't know anything about these people. So that's another thing that, like, there's no real justice in this case. Yes, he's in prison for, for the murders of... Laurent and Connie at the moment he was in prison for Jean-Luc Solomon's murder but everyone else in Thailand there's no justice for them there's not it's just really frustrating yeah and like and that's the thing as well like he so he he's murdered all these people including some of his associates he you know yes he's imprisoned for you know, this, this, and this. But you've also got, like, there are countless people that we don't know the names of that he robbed, that he stole their passports, that he, you know, drugged and then left on the side of the road, whatever it may be. So, like, it's just, it's massive, yeah. this case. And and this is going, like, his criminal history went all the way back. More than 60 years, yeah. him being, like, a kid. yeah joining street gangs so and acting out to get attention and things like that and just like you say with so many victims that we don't know about yeah yeah just like the sheer size of this is insane and like yeah with that in mind i'm really curious to see how this 
I don't know if it's a mini series or a limited series or whatever that's coming out on uh, from BBC and Netflix, how the fuck they're going to tackle all this. Yeah, I think it's only either four or six parts. Yeah. I think it's four. So it's a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. But yeah, so we will be watching it when it comes out. Yeah. And taking turns to post about it on social media and like Instagram stories and stuff. So if you're watching, yeah. hang out with us. It comes out on New Year's Day. They haven't sponsored this episode, by the way. We just <laughs> but very well timed. Hey, BBC, Netflix especially netflix <laughs> with that netflix money do you want to sponsor us you do great that's great send all your money in unmarked bills with non-sequential serial numbers no wait that's something else um yeah that's that's another scheme yeah. <laughs> we haven't got round to that yet but hey if any of you out there is listening and has any sort of company you want to advertise or book you want to promote or anything like that hit us up because we're open to anything we need the money <laughs> we're open to anything <laughs> and we like but yeah like running a business we'll put it <laughs> yeah <sighs> and with that in mind yes Thank you all for listening. I think that's the end of this guy's crazy two-part story. Um, so, uh, we do want to take a moment um, to say thank you for all of your support this year. Um, this was our final full-length episode of uh, 2020, but we will have a, a Patreon bonus episode coming out for all of our patrons so that's starting from uh one pound and up and um that will be coming out on christmas eve and uh we also uh have a little surprise coming up for everyone on our main feed here where you're listening right now uh, on christmas day so keep an eye or ear or both out for that, depending on how things go. Um, and uh, come follow us on social media. Let you know, what, let us know what you think of this case. And uh, we, our our books are open, so to speak, to uh, to mark down all the cases that we're going to cover for next year. So we would love to get all of your case suggestions for 2021. Um. And if if you've done all those things and you still have some free time, uh, we would really love it if you could give us a quick rating, uh, a five-star rating and a review. just takes like two minutes and it helps us reach more people and uh, grow the podcast. And it also it just, you know, warms our cold little hearts. And we do like reading out some yes. nice reviews we get. Yes. So leave a nice review and we'll probably read it out. Yeah. If you've got some spare pennies and would like to give us some money, you can buy your Square Mile of Murder merch right now. The link is in the episode description. It's on our social media and the website. And until Christmas Day, so you've still got like three more days, if you're two more days, if you're listening to this on the day of release, we still have 20% off everything with the code LAUNCH. It's L-A-U-N-C-H. Uh, you can also become a patron of the show uh tiers start from just one pound or one dollar per month you get regular episodes a day early two dollars or two pounds and up you get some exclusive money can't buy merch five dollars plus gets bonus episodes and other content every month and in 2021 we will be working on bringing even more content everything we earn goes back into the pod and we are working on bringing you so much more for 2021 so we will see you all next year. Yes. Uh, thank you all so much um, uh, for coming on this journey with us during the most crazy bullshit of years. Yes. Uh, so we will, we will see you soon um, next year 
And until then, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Happy Holidays. Yeah. Uh, Happy New Year. We'll see you all in 2021. Yes. See you then. Bye. Bye.